Broadcasting from the capital, British Columbia, this is West Coast Views. We would like to acknowledge that West Coast Views is recorded on the traditional territory of the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Wasanic people. Thank you for joining us. I'm Ryan. I'm Mark. And I'm Christina. And this week we're going to be talking about uh, only really one subject, but there's a lot to it. And we're going to be talking about the revelations that came out of David Eby's report that was released called Dirty Money, which unveiled uh, just the scope and extent to which money laundering has been occurring in British Columbia, uh, largely through casinos uh, and largely unchecked for almost a decade, maybe even more. Uh, so let's uh, let's dive right into this topic. So what do you just both of you have been following the news? You guys, uh, you know what's been going on. How how do you feel about the revelations that have come out? Uh, I I feel that so seeing a, a seeing a report entitled "Dirty Money" that is talking about the time that the BC Liberals were in power isn't surprising, but it is very disappointing. Uh, it, it's very disappointing for me to see uh, not only the leader of the opposition, but former ministers stepping forward and making verifiably false statements, uh, flat out lying to the public about what has happened and their role in it, and also turning and saying that uh, we we don't want to actually know who was responsible. Nobody really needs to be held accountable as long as everybody knows that it's fixed now, and we're just gonna we're gonna go after the real criminals, those involved in organized crime, and not those that through their actions and inactions caused and helped to facilitate the expansion of organized crime in British Columbia. Yeah, we've definitely seen, um, so the liberals were in power when a lot of this was occurring. Uh, in fact, uh, the timeline that was provided by uh, one of the reporters who wrote about it uh, really pointed to 2002 when the, the new gaming act was brought in that essentially opened up these loopholes and allowed money laundering to go through our casinos uh, fairly unchecked and, and allowed or criminal organizations to fund their operations. Um, the BC Liberal response has, has largely just been, uh, you know, we, we don't want to blame anyone. We, we, we need to move forward and not look back. Uh, and the people who were involved, um, you know, Rich Coleman has come out and, and made some statements uh, essentially just saying that it wasn't an issue. They did everything they could, but it wasn't happening. Uh, but they still were, were on it and they worked on it, but it wasn't there. Um, Mike DeYoung, who was the finance minister, hasn't made a statement whatsoever. Andrew Wilkinson, as leader of the opposition, who was in cabinet at the time, has uh, generally just deflected. Um, and then, uh, and then uh, Jazz Joel Hall has been their, their spokesperson who wasn't in government at the time, so he can't really speak to what was happening there, and yet he's, he was the first one to come out and sort of give a response, which, which just seemed inappropriate, and I think he was called out for it at the time. The response has been very textbook in its deflection of, like, the, the, I, I call it political speech here, like when, when your mom tells you that there's cookies missing from the cookie jar, you don't just go, it wasn't me you tend to be a little more creative about it and you start shifting blame to other parties that may be involved, other ones that exist. Um, could be a little brother, could be you said that, well, I heard from dad that it was okay or the, something like that. But what you're trying to do ultimately is maximize the credit of the good things that happen and minimize blame for the bad things that happen. So when you had a, a potentially systemic failure, I mean, it's still not very clear what and how exactly it happened that it, it got to this here. But when you look at the reaction, um, there's a lot of deflection and a lot of minimizing of blame. It was somebody else's fault. Information never made it to me exactly. It wasn't my role specifically. Um, it wasn't their mandate. 
to be to actually tackle something in in hindsight that we're we're recognizing as like this is a, a massive systematic failure. Well, but it's also a systemic failure that was orchestrated by the BC Liberal government. They came in, they changed the legislation, they changed how exactly illegal gambling enforcement was run in the province. They created a system where there were jurisdictional turf wars between the BC Lottery Corporation and their enforcement agencies that were supposed to be the ones enforcing gambling. Um, they were the ones who facilitated a system in which all of those players that, you know, Shirley Bond has come out and said, oh, well, I mean, it was just a really unfortunate series of events, effectively. Uh, well, those players were all put in place by the BC Liberals. They were all according to BC Liberal ministers. They were all under the direction of a BC Liberal government that just continued to allow this to be pushed under the rug. Um, people that worked as investigators during the time say effectively that they did not want to listen. Yeah, well, and so one of the things, or two of the things that, that have happened, uh, and these were highlighted in the report, was that uh, there was a task force that was supposed to be investigating uh, illegal gaming and, and enforce, you know, they were the enforcement body. Uh, and they did bring uh, these concerns to the minister and they said that, yeah, yes, we are significantly concerned that this is happening. And shortly after that, uh, it was disbanded. Um, and Rich Coleman claims that he, at first he claimed that he did so on the recommendation of the RCMP. The RCMP had disputed that and said that, no, they did not make that recommendation. Um, and then he, he said that it was inefficient and they weren't doing their job. Uh, but, it, you know, they were aware of this. So obviously they were doing their job enough to be aware of the circumstances. So they were disbanded by the minister. And then an RCMP investigator uh, publicly said uh, during an interview that, yes, this was a concern. He was worried that there was uh, money laundering going through casinos. And, um, and that, that statement could have just stood. It could have just been, you know, out there and, and it, it was a true statement. Uh, the minister, or Rich Coleman, again, came out and very publicly attack the credibility of this RCMP investigator and said, no, like that is not happening. Uh, so, you know, you make the point uh, that the, the BC Liberals facilitated this through their, their actions and their inactions. Um, it seems like there was a very uh, resistance to even acknowledging that this could be happening or that anything they could have done might have led to it. And it seems like at the time they, they wanted no, they wanted to make sure that nobody in the province believed that this was happening, uh, whether or not they knew if it was or not. They they worked very hard to make sure that people didn't think it was happening. And it's very difficult, very very difficult to believe that they did not know what was happening when there were year after year investigative journalists going into casinos. CBC actually went in and successfully laundered eighty percent of thirty thousand dollars in cash that they took to two different casinos with three employees just to see if they could. And they found that, yeah, they absolutely could launder money through casinos. That was in 2008, I believe, that they went and did that. And that was a follow-up report for them because they had actually done an initial investigation in 2004, which perhaps was one of the things that got that integrated illegal gaming enforcement uh, team put together in the first place. Now. Where I find it very difficult is that Rich Coleman says that he disbanded the unit because they were ineffective. Now, that unit was not tasked with looking at gambling in casinos. They were actually tasked with only looking at illegal gambling, not looking at legal gambling through casinos. They spent years looking into illegal gambling in a variety of ways. When they came out with a report and they told the minister 
they're concerned that the Hells Angels have infiltrated legal gambling, that organized crime has infiltrated legal gambling, that they need to have an expanded scope to their mandate and they need to have the resources to actually track money laundering when it's happening. That's when a couple of weeks later they were disbanded and that money was just pushed down to a variety of ad hoc police departments or policing departments that did not have the jurisdiction or the knowledge to be able to actually effectively tackle money laundering as it was happening. So in terms of optics, the timing is extremely uh, inconvenient to disband the uh, RCMP unit. Um, a lot of people are trying to voice what journalists themselves cannot necessarily say. So in terms of optics, the timing of disbanding the RCMP unit was is extremely inconvenient for them. Uh, what is not clear is the tracing of the line of decision making that led to this as a as a I mean you said it Christina that it's being facilitated by a party that was previously in power um, but what was the decision making where that led to them changing the legislation where are the briefing notes that says this was the recommendation of where it came from um, and what about uh, like part of the problem with uh, when you look at I mean people are calling this corrupt there's a lot of people calling for heads on spikes and, and for uh, uh, people to not be in the uh, in the legislature. Um, but when you look at how corruption works in the U.S., part of the problem with uh, being able to go after it is you need a, a, a quid pro quo. You need to be able to show that here was the money and it was exchanged for a decision. And it's not, there's so many different barriers you can put in between that clear line of decision making and uh, 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 collusion um, before you can actually call it corruption out and out and be able to do anything about it prosecutorially. So something I wouldn't mind just kind of throwing out there related to that, um, and this, you know, I'm I'm not going to end this by saying that this proves corruption. It won't. Um, but one thing that that what has come out is that Rich so Rich Coleman and his name is going to keep coming up throughout this because he was involved uh, for a very long time. He was uh, he would change ministerial posts and the gaming uh, portfolio would follow with him from ministry to ministry. So and and something that that came out recently was that he was treated like a king by the gaming industry. So he would go into a casino and he would be given the full VIP treatment. He he would get free food. He would get, um, you know, the staff would wait on him. Um, and then in addition to that, so Rich Coleman was one of their major fundraisers. Uh, the gaming industry has donated a lot of like hundreds of thousands of dollars to the BC Liberal Party. Uh, so the, while this doesn't say that, you know, he knew that this, this money equaled this uh, illegal activity. It's very clear that he had a close relationship with the gaming industry to the point where he was benefiting from that close relationship. And I think there's probably a very solid argument to be made that there were multiple conflicts of interest in the decisions that he made in this portfolio um, because because of the closeness of the industry to to him personally and to benefit his party. That that, that there were conflicts when. The, when these decisions had to be made, particularly with relation to shutting down the you know aspects of the industry that uh, were allowed money laundering to, to happen, that would have hurt the industry. It would have the industry would not have made as much money. They wouldn't have been as successful. And so there there is a, a, a very clear line to a conflict of interest for him in even being able, the one making those decisions. 
And I find that that reading of conflict of interest is the most, or sorry, not of conflict of interest, but of corruption, where it says, you know, you have to actually have, you know, a dollar value associated with a particular decision is the narrowest definition of corruption that can possibly be found. Uh, I, I genuinely believe that it's used because it is so narrow that people can push a lot of things out into a gray area of, oh, well, it's not really provable. But when, as a minister, you go into uh, industry in which you are supposed to have oversight and you get VIP treatment and you also happen to be a top fundraiser for your party and know that perhaps it's not a check written by the casino. Perhaps it's just all of the owner operators. Perhaps it's just a bunch of different individuals that are associated with the different gaming organizations. Uh, there have been media reports that uh, People came out and said, oh, well, actually, I donated in my own name because it was suggested to me that it looks bad for a gaming operation to donate to the BC Liberal Party, so I wanted to donate in my own name instead. I, I think how decision makers arrive at their decisions is also poorly understood. Like, just on a civics education level, we're, we're not privy, we're not a fly on the wall to see what it, what it is to be a, a minister or to be a head of state and to sit in with powerful uh, members of industry in a room or at a country club and to be able to hear the conversations and hear how they're talking and to see how how on the nose is it that this would be good for my industry and it's going to be good for you are they ever going to be so blunt about it even when they're uh just alone in a room we're not actually privy to that and that's a part of uh, power and decision making that i think could be better understood but one of the things that you see in the u.s is uh it, it's so brazen it's sloppy so they would have the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, and they would actually give legislators that they were funding, um, you know, taking on these lavish vacations and uh, giving money to the coffers of their campaigns or to political action committees because you can't, you can't often give it as a, as a, a corporate entity to directly to the candidate. There's a maximum on that, but you can't give it to a political action committee, and that committee can then facilitate um, sponsorship and, and endorsements uh, for candidacies. Um, and what would happen is the American Legislative Exchange Council was uh, giving legislation that they had their think tanks draw up and giving it to the legislator to introduce to the state legislature. However, they it was so sloppy that they were giving the legislation um, with the same letterhead as ALEC. It was supposed to be changed to that specific state legislators and it wasn't so there's there's been cases like that here where it's just like it's so common i will point out that the practice that you described there christina of uh, of an individual donating um into where the donation is ultimately on behalf of the company but they use their name to obscure that that is actually one of the very few things that was illegal under the bc liberals uh and there were people that were actually charged um more uh with with it making illegal donations though donations did have to be returned uh that was more within the real estate industry that that came out but uh that was actually so what you're describing um is it was illegal and that that was something that you know that they shouldn't have been able to accept that donation if they were encouraged to make that kind of donation um if it were to be found out that you know rich coleman or even a staffer had made that suggestion uh they broke the law. Uh, so there is, you know, we, we're so we're so right on the point of, 
I think we're hesitant to say that this is corruption, that this is clear, because we, you know, as people who, who believe in the in in laws and, and in due diligence and making sure that everyone has their day, uh, you know, to, to present their side, we want the evidence to be there. Um, but we are so close to it in this report, and it lays it out so clearly that it's it's almost impossible not to go there and say, yeah, you know what, on, on weighing all of the options, on looking at all the things that could have happened here, it is a much more plausible explanation that corruption was in, in play rather than incompetence. And I almost never say that. I almost always say that, you know, incompetence is the more likely explanation. But reading this report and, and reading the news and reading the response from the ministers, um, I, I think at this point we, we have to weigh that is the more likely situation. Um, even though, you know, there hasn't been a smoking gun, there's a lot of smoke in the air. And I would tend to agree with you, Ryan. And it's been very fascinating after this report has come out to then go back through the timeline because we live in an era where that knowledge is really still at the, at the tip of our fingers. Um, just doing a couple of quick Google searches, you can find that there were reports over years over exactly these issues. Um, when Rich Coleman says that he you know, wanted to keep really hands off because it would have been a, a breach of his ministerial duties and he, he wouldn't want to interfere with investigations. Well, he certainly didn't feel above calling Surrey city councillors when there was a proposal to put in a casino expansion in South Surrey to express how if that proposal did not go forward, there would be no other proposals from the BC Lottery Commission uh, or the BC Lottery Corporation for Surrey at all. It was either that site or no site. Um, and, you know, while they admit that he, you know, just had a conversation with them, the end of that conversation was that they were very sure that there were consequences of their actions as municipal politicians in how they were going to vote on a project that uh, this minister should not have been interfering in. So it, just to to pivot a little bit on this, um, because, you know, obviously there's the implications of the people involved, but I, what I really want to talk about is sort of the impact of this. And there was a, a great article that was written by uh, uh, Sandy Garasino that um, basically said, stop whitewashing the bodies. Um, because when we're talking about this, we're not just talking about, you know, some white collar person walking in with a duffel bag full of money uh, and then laundering it, you know, it, they embezzled it and they laundered it. It's possible that was happening too. But we're, we're also talking about uh, a time period in which there was a rapid expansion of gang violence in British Columbia. This, you know, Surrey was was crippled by it at times. Uh, I still don't think that city has recovered. And, uh, you know, there, the expansion of drugs, the, the overdose crisis, the fact that, you know, a lot of people have died as a result of the expansion of gang and criminal activity in British Columbia. Um, this appears to be how a lot of those gangs were financing themselves. This is where they they made their money because you know if you make money illicitly, it is it is very difficult to get that into a bank and have it be legitimate. This was a way they did that, and so you know there there's a direct connection between the social ills that we experienced through the 2000s, um, especially in urban areas. And and you know I, I grew up in the Okanagan. This was a problem in Kelowna. Um, there's there's a direct connection between being able to finance yourselves and and the, the the effect, which is a lot of people got killed, a lot of people died of overdoses, and then you know I, I speak from the heart on this because someone I know was caught in the crossfire, 
uh, and and this person hunted down somebody, and and some you know a close friend of mine was there, and and he ultimately uh, they both died as a result of this. So even though that's not you know it's not like Rich Coleman was there, um, but the effect of the expansion of drugs means that I've lost someone. I'm sure other people have lost someone, uh, and and that's I think that's the core of why this matters. Like you can't get you can't get past that like this matters because people died we lost people i lost someone like this is not some little thing where some white collar criminals got away with something people died i think what you said really underscores the importance that decisions made at the top of the pyramid do flow downward and they have effects on people in the rest of the pyramid yeah, and I mean, I would absolutely agree that we're still seeing the impacts today. I mean, it's there's a municipal election coming up, and one of the top issues in Surrey is public safety. They are still facing the same kinds of challenges with gang violence, with crime, and it can all be traced back to when it became much easier for organized criminals to start washing their profits in ways that suddenly they had a lot of legal money, and that legal money started getting funneled not only into opioids, which have killed thousands of people, and not just the people that were actually involved with selling the drugs and, and getting into drug deals, but I mean, I'm talking about people all over British Columbia. We are talking about people's families. We are talking about co-workers. We are talking about teenage kids in their bedrooms that their parents have no idea what's going on. We're talking about uh, elderly people who have been hooked on opioids by doctors across Canada and end up in British Columbia and end up you know, having a, a hard time with their finances because another part of this feeds right into our housing affordability crisis. A big part of how all this money laundering went is it's not just coming from drugs, it has to go to somewhere because once you've got cash, you want to sit it somewhere. Well, in Vancouver, that's in real estate and they called it the Vancouver model. When there are law enforcement agencies around the world that have a specific name for the kind of money laundering that's going on, it's really, really hard, as Ryan has said, to believe that this was just incompetence and that there was no aspect of corruption going on. And that corruption has led to, as we've talked about, death, no. poverty, bad things for all British Columbians, uh, things that we're still struggling with, issues that are going to take decades rather than years in order to even try to solve. Um, and it's... This, these are like long-term systemic solutions that we're going to have to try to pull out of the morass of this blind spot, this thing that was just pushed under the carpet because, oh, well, we don't want to talk about it. Uh, Jazz Joe Hall came out and said, oh, well, stuff was going on behind the scenes and we were told not to say anything because it would impede the investigation. Well, journalists didn't seem to think that it was going to impede the investigation. In fact, they were the investigation a lot of the time. Uh, the enforcement officers that were involved didn't seem to think that becoming taking it public would impede the investigation. They were silenced. They were bullied. They were silenced. They were fired without cause. Now, I mean, you highlight it really well there, Christina, that, you know, this is, we're not going to see BC recover from this for a long time. Uh, I'm someone, I believe very firmly in, in justice, and, and justice is very different from punishment. Um, I certainly, you know, uh, part of me really wants to see people punished for this, but I also want to see justice. I want to see the systemic changes that that not just, you know, put the people who are responsible behind bars, but prevent this from happening so that future generations don't have to grow up with gangs being a fact of life. So what, what thinking, you know, the NDP are in government, it's no longer the liberals, they have an eye on this, they've realized what's happening. What, what do you think 
what's justice going to look like? What are the steps that we're going to be able to take as, as a government and as a society to, to, to see justice here? That was a question I have because we're, what, what are we hoping for out of this specific scandal? Because as Peter Driven talked about, um, organized crime, are, they're very wily. And first of all, we haven't even talked about who these organized criminals are. We haven't necessarily gone into uh, who exactly the or if they're you know Chinese triads or if they're um, other gang affiliations, and how are they connected to the, uh, the 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 casino industries here, and how does that interact with what is actually going to be Peter German's next report, which is on real estate, which I think is going to be explosive. Um, but what is, sorry, you asked what justice is going to look like yeah. here. Um, organized crime, it's like water. It'll find the path of least resistance. It, it's already moved away from the casinos now because of the added uh, look at it here. Where did it go into? It's not really clear. They could be sitting on their money. It could be going further into real estate. Um, but we don't know the full scope of, of organized crime and uh, uh, and criminality in the real estate industry. Never mind from you know, unscrupulous realtors and, and real estate boards, um, but also by actual organized criminals, people who, they, they live and die by the wilds. They live and die by their, the, by their cunning, and a lot of people are affected by that. And what justice to me out of this will mean is that the people at the top, the people who have power, are going to meaningfully, meaningfully feel the responsibility about how they use that power. Because what we had here was a systemic failure, but it had to do with people, ultimately, human beings making decisions. And how they came to those decisions is extremely important and something that I, I think ought to change if we're going to see a more just world where, a more just world. And I agree with you, Mark, on the, on the issue of transparency. I think that that's definitely something that would help. Um, a lot of the investigative journalism that happened, uh, it was really fighting tooth and nail with government to try to drag out documentation, um, waiting years for freedom of information requests to come out. It shouldn't take years for citizens to find out what is happening in their government. It's not an appropriate way to run a government. Uh, I, I think that in this information age especially, that issue of transparency and accountability becomes even more important because there's such access to information. And in a vacuum of real information, other things come up. People come up with their own theories. People come up with stories that they tell. I think that there were a lot of stories that were told about how everything was totally fine and, and nothing was really going on and there wasn't anything to really be worried about, but we really need to have that transparency and accountability. Um, I feel for the Premier. Uh, I think that he's in a tough spot with all of these calls for a public inquiry. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that a public inquiry is a long expensive process that has no real time frame. Uh, it could take months, it could take years. Uh, there's really, nobody knows what the end result of the inquiry is anyway. I mean, they'll come up with more recommendations. It's still things that would have to be actioned by government. And I mean, at that point, really what we're looking at is massive reform. Uh, we need to have massive reform, not only of, uh, not, not just of gambling, obviously, but also of the real estate industry. Um, and I agree with Mark that that is going to be explosive. Uh, Peter German himself has said that it is going to be a different beast in a lot of ways than the look at the casino industry because casinos and gaming in BC are very limited and, and kind of separate 
aspect. I mean, it was a very convenient way for money to be laundered, but it doesn't touch on as many things as real estate does in the economy. It had at least, you know, some consolidated oversight rather than different real estate boards in different regions and different real estate regulators and, and all of the different pieces and components that go into the real estate industry. Um, it's going to be a tough job to actually close up the uh, loopholes that are there that are allowing criminals to continue to wash their money. Uh, I think that you know the bear trust loophole is definitely going to be one that they're going to be looking at really hard because that is, again, coming back to that issue of transparency and accountability. Uh, and figuring out who the real beneficial owner is is going to be really important to being able to even start to track things and understand what's happening. So I'm of the opinion that it's because we live in these massive societies here with massive structures and giant systems that it's much harder for people who have a lot of power to care about the, the products of the decisions they make with that power. So it's actually much harder in the society we have today to be accountable, um, to be transparent, uh, particularly when uh, when you talk about reform here, think about the political culture because what keeps someone, you know, willingly ignorant about the never never mind just how hard it is to understand you know the the products of your decision making because you are literally separated by so much here. You don't see the connections between a decision you make at the top and how it's actually going to affect people on the ground. Um, but think about what are your incentives to not understand, right? Like, so there, there's that whole line about it's hard to convince a man something when their paycheck depends on them not understanding. And when your, our political culture has been described as the Wild West um, because of the amount of money uh, that goes into uh, the, the gamesmanship of trying to win at politics here. So if how hard are you going to criticize somebody who's facilitating your success not not like they're they're your enablers and you're not uh just by virtue of human nature right everybody has this one singular bias at the core of their being which is self-preservation and enhancement of themselves and the people around them and that kind of tribalism that kind of uh outlook is present in our, our political culture to the nth degree where we have um a very toxic partisanship and in order to win at the game of politics, you have to have money. In order to have to have money, you got to be appealing to people with money. And you do that by being in a room with them, smoking cigars, being in a country club, being treated as a VIP, and having some of your opinions start to meld with theirs so that when decisions come down, you're in effect preserving or enhancing their interests as well as your own. I think one thing that's really fundamentally gets to is that... Um... The decision that the BC Greens made last year to topple the BC Liberal government was absolutely the right one, uh, because if that hadn't happened, I don't imagine that any of this would have been discovered for a long time. Um, I'm, I'm sure there would have been talk about you know money laundering, and I'm sure the government would have made motions as though they were doing something about it, but it's fairly clear they didn't want to fix the problem. Um, David Eby, as Attorney General, has done an exemplary job, and I think this this maybe goes to the, the conversation about a, a public inquiry is that David Eby has very effectively over the last year laid out how how this occurred through the casinos. And, um, you know, he's Peter German has written the report, but David Eby has really been driving a lot of this. He has come out time and time again to talk about uh, what has been discovered. He has access to the cabinet documents, which is usually the hardest thing to get access to. Uh, and now he, he's set a clear direction for where it's going next, and it's going into the real estate industry. So by having him as the attorney general, I think that has really driven 
what has happened here. And I think the BC Liberals are, are starting to see, probably, uh, hopefully, why they're not in government. You know, they, they let these issues fester for so long and they ignored them or looked the other way. They accepted lots and lots, you know, millions and millions of dollars of donations over the years. And, and the, the chickens are coming home to roost. They are now seeing the product of, of those decisions and, and the, the decisions that they made and who they cozied up to during their time in government. And maybe they weren't aware of it at the time, but now, now they are seeing the consequences of their actions. And, and I think, you know, from their position in opposition, um, I, there, the, there must be a lot of self-reflection on their part about what, what occurred. Self-reflection and a lot of deflection. Again, so it's, it's pretty technical. I think it depends who you're looking at. You, well, okay, okay yeah. So there, there's been different responses by different individuals, granted. Um, but how is this going to affect their party here? So they're going to try to circle the wagons. They're going to try to protect the brand. Um, and hopefully it's going to die down. Well, I think that the other thing that this points out is that the BC Greens absolutely made the right decision to not go with the BC Liberals and go with the BC NDP just to get big money out of politics, just to actually get legislation that got real restrictions on big money in politics. That was not something that would ever have happened under the BC Liberals. We can see why, because they were, had a very successful fundraising machine based on taking as much money as you could give them from... A variety of people and I understand that Rich Coleman has said that they had an internal code of conduct on who they could take their money from um, there's no evidence of that that we've actually been presented with in the media if you look through the elections BC records it seems that a lot of money came from a lot of different places that may or may not have violated what the Liberals say their code of conduct was um, but it really just comes back to the fact that we needed to get big money out of politics um, I'm so happy that we actually have had some legislation put into place and that's really key to this whole thing and when it comes back to mark what you're talking about is you know that donor cycle of you've got donors and they sponsor your convention and they're the people that you can always rely on to buy tickets for your fundraiser and you know you get to become friends with them well you're going to have a lot more friends now because hopefully it'll be individual british columbians that are donating to parties and then you're going to be responsible of them and not corporations yeah um i i think it needs to go a little further than just money and politics it's got to also reflect in our education we need to know how it is that money affects our our thinking i don't think that's well in tuned enough in in uh, voters minds and it has to do with like this fuzzy blurry line between like that that quid pro quo is talking about here how does uh money affect your decision making a lot of that is stuff that that's so that's so um intangible because it's it's personal interactions it's personal discussions um it's who you hang out with it's your social circles uh it's it's the culture they have and the subcultures there that part is poorly understood, um, but that, I mean, you, you could take money out of politics here, but ultimately um, decisions can still be made to and, and very much not in the public interest, not in the long-term public interest as well. And, and I agree that that actually happened with the BC Lottery Corporation as well. I mean, I feel that some of the jurisdictional turf fighting and some of the things that occurred where we didn't follow up and we didn't investigate money laundering was because there was an inherent conflict in the BC Lottery Corporation of how they were handling these people who effectively pay all of their salaries. I mean, you only have the BC Lottery Corporation as it exists because of the gaming industry. 
uh, when the gaming industry grows in size, you grow in size in order to keep going. And it is not something that people are very comfortable with when you say, oh, well, we're going to we're going to stop the money flow. You can't take all of this cash. You can't, you know, we have to be you know, reporting things differently. We, we really got to cut back on things. Uh, and that's when you start to look around and say, well, I mean, but this is our department. We need our budget. We need to justify what we're doing. Uh, there's lots of different ways in which money can influence decision-making, even if it's out of the realm of politics, if it's in the bureaucracy, even if it's not when we're looking at political parties with donations. Um, the fact that you have a yeah. lot of money going on and a lot of money that you're overseeing and a lot of relationships that you've built with people with a lot of money who, you know, their your work relies on them existing. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's pretty much always a bad idea for an industry to be both responsible for regulation and enforcement and also promoting the industry. Um, th there's an inherent conflict in, in any organization where that is their role because you can't enforce and, and regulate. Uh, I think this is one of the issues with professional reliance that's being overhauled in British Columbia on environmental protection is that you really can't be regulating at the same time when you're trying to grow and promote the industry. Um, you, you can you can put in checks and balances for yourself, but ultimately you need that second, the third party look to truly, you know, regulate and say, you know, uh, looking at this from, you know, from an outside perspective, you're doing this wrong or, or you're going the wrong direction. But if, you're, if your job is to promote the industry and to make sure that it grows and that it's profitable, What's your incentive to also shut down aspects of it or clamp down well, on is that a Is that like a conflict of, you're talking about a conflict of purpose here. So like yeah, there's, yeah. there's dual purposes that have to be fulfilled. Um, that are in conflict with each yeah, other. I mean, earlier we talked about like the, the definition of corruption is so narrow that in order to prove it, you need to show that there's that there was a bag of money and there was a piece of legislation or something like that. There was a, there was a piece of favoritism. So the Sunlight, Corporation, Sunlight Foundation in the U.S., um, took a look at the top 200 companies uh, in America and their donations from like 2009 to 2012, something like that, and um, found that there was uh, they donated something like um, 400 billion dollars. I'm definitely getting the wrong. I have to look that up here. Um, a lot of money. A lot of money. But what they got back was a 700% return and the trillions of dollars in in the form of uh, tax rebates and. Um, uh, all kinds of exemptions uh, that happen, not to mention just pieces of legislation that ultimately benefited the the, the major stakeholders in these industries. Um, so it's it's also a cumulative thing over a longer period here. But if you try to pinpoint it to anyone, like this is the bag of money, so you're gonna a better way to do it, I think, is to expand the definition of corruption to what was your purpose at the beginning, and how well are you achieving that? And when we're talking about Right now, we're, we're in a weird place because we have massive organizations. And when you start an organization, when you start a political party, when you start a government, you start a union, you start a corporation, you're, you have a vision you're setting out to do, and you have your principles, you have your way of going about achieving that vision. And once you start straying from that vision, that's when you notice here, I mean, it's going to happen no matter what, because the people at the heads of those organizations are going to change, and they're going to have different motivations coming in. So it's easier for them with personal agendas of, of attaining power um, or accruing money. Um, corruption is, is, brought, is defined broadly as the, uh, the uh, taking public resources for private gain. Um, but it's also like you've taken the purpose of that organization here and now you're bending it towards something else. 
And so I think that's broadly what's, what's happening with our, our politics here, where it's supposed to be our tool for coming together and talking about the issues and being able to negotiate and problem solve, because the fact is we are a society and we have to talk about our problems in order to solve them, and we have a lot of resources between us, and so we all congregate those, and we have an administrative uh, body that will dispense with that, and there's going to be an elected body that's going to oversee how the, those funds are dispersed and what we're going to do and how to prioritize that. We've moved so far away from that, and we have no teachings about how to bring us back to the fundamental, like this is what our society was supposed to be, this is what a democracy is supposed to do, um, that we're, we're, it feels piecemeal here. So when we talk about reform, it's either got to be the whole thing, or we're just going to be doing this again in five years. I mean, we're going to be doing this again with the, with the uh, report on the real estate. I think I have a little bit different of a view of, of a democracy because, I mean, you're really talking about an ideal type when you talk about, like, getting back to, like, but the beginning of something, and there is no beginning to our society. It's been this messy, cumulative... So I should, I should clarify. I should clarify off. because when I when I talk about this here, I I have in my head the fact that we're, we're hunter-gatherers very essentially and that our, we're very good at adapting, but we have... We're, we're standing on the shoulders of tech giants and we're all using technology that we didn't we don't know how to build if we had to build it from scratch we don't know how it works but we use it all the time and our society's kind of evolved um to this place where it's it's so massive and we're all just ants but we don't really recognize the anthill that we're operating in we don't recognize the super organism that we've we've created with our societies um but our biology is still very much tied to that hunter-gatherer. It's, it's in the combinations of fat, salt, and sugar that if you get that right combination here, our caveman biology is just going to love it, and that leads directly to diabetes and obesity epidemic. It's also in something like Dunbar's number here where we can only really care about a maximum number of people. As a primate, there's... The, uh, I, I mean, the, there's actual debate on, on what that means and the layers to it here, but um, when the scientist Dunbar uh, was looking into that, um, he found that for the human primate, it's about 150 people. It's about 150 people that you can really be compassionate to, like compassionate means you can put yourself in their place to walk a mile in their moccasins to understand what they're going through. So when I talk about there being a pyramid in society and the people at the top and the people at the bottom and those people who have the power make decisions, what information are they getting? How open to compassion and empathy to the people in the rest of the pyramid are they so that when they make their decisions, they're doing it with the best and long-term interests of the other people in the pyramid of mind. Well, and where I would see that coming from is, you're right, we have a very large society with a lot of moving pieces. There are definitely more than 150 individuals that a minister or an MLA is going to be interacting with and representing and supposed to be having compassion for and understanding and, and taking their interests into account. Um, I, I think that there is an issue with politicians not necessarily having um, good understanding of a lot of different layers in society. Uh, something that a uh, minister came out with um, in relation to the Dirty Money Report that kind of surprised me. Um, and, I mean, I say surprised, but I sort of thought about it. And I was like, okay, it's just like, oh, well, you know, um, we just didn't really think twice about people going and gambling $100,000 at a time and losing it all. I mean, it's sort of a silly thing to do, and, you know, we don't really think that's a great thing, but, I mean, some people do that, and I went, well, 
gosh, the Who kind of people hang out with? Yeah, the kind of people that can just drop $100,000 and not think twice about it, but you didn't think that was money laundering because that's just what people do? Okay, well, maybe you're not actually capable of understanding the public interest <laughs> and the best interests of our society if that's your view of a normal activity. It's very yeah, you, you have to be very out of touch to think that that's a normal thing. Well, it's it's like when uh, Donald Trump says we're elites or something like that. Um, which actually, the funny thing is, that part of the reason he had appeal at the very beginning uh, of his candidacy ahead of the 2016 one was he talked about how you know these guys up on here they call me when they want money. They ask me what I'm looking for when they want money. I mean, that's that we're talking about the the someone who is a, a purported billionaire, I very much doubt. Maybe now he is because he's been president and he's been pilfering the country, but he probably wasn't a, a billionaire uh, ahead of the election and he wasn't going to release that. Um, but he's, he's so outspoken and so brazen and so oafish um, that it was easy for him to talk about like how corrupt the system is and to ride the, uh, the wave of anger, populist rage at just how establishment and, and closed off the system is um, by talking about how corrupt it was and like how there is definitely a connection between money and decision making. Well, and I think, you know, one of the things that there's a clear connection between is, is uh, the consequences and like people live with those consequences. They see the politicians make a decision. Um, they see the impact that, you know, jobs are lost, uh, social strife flourishes, uh, gangs, violence, uh, and, and so people do see, they, they see the consequences of those decisions. And, and as, as you mentioned, uh, politicians don't necessarily like, you know, they, the, the reality is, is that politicians get paid fairly well. Um, I'm not, you know, they're not going to get super rich off of it, but they, they don't live sort of the, the, they don't live a poverty stricken life. So they don't see those, those gritty, you know, sort of awful social ills that come uh, as a result, not of, you know, not of a decision that they've made, but as a result of the community falling apart because of the an influx of gang violence or because of, uh, of um, the collapse of, you know, a social safety net because it wasn't supported by the government. So uh, I think there, there, there's a truism there in that uh, politicians really do become out of touch just, just by nature of being a politician. Like you, you can't be necessarily in touch with people that, that you're no longer in the same uh socioeconomic status well years ago the mayor of phoenix arizona actually went uh he became homeless for a month and he, he decided he was going to try to see what it's like to be homeless for a month he had to stop after about 14 days because he was trying to, to eat the same amount of calories that a homeless person would on average eat in that city um and he became so unhealthy that they that his staff basically forced him to stop is it, i mean about poverty right like how interesting would that be if we saw rich coleman take a vow of poverty and understand what it was like to because he was minister of housing for a bit. Remember, he was the Minister of Mines, Energy, and Housing. So there was, for, that was an issue I worked on at the time and tried to get interviews with him to talk about uh, an issue that I, I care very much about. Um, and to me, it always, it always resonated that the people who are making these decisions here are like, oh, too bad, so sad. You can just go somewhere else here. If you can't afford to live, well, then move. What do you want? You got, you know, packing boxes over there. Um, and it was like, it was just this, you don't, you don't appreciate what's going through the mind of someone who uh, who has disabled children or who uh, is low income or is just starting out in life with their first home or are seniors on fixed incomes. They're, they're not getting it. And these are the people who have the power to actually do something about it and they're not getting it. 
and it's often because of that political culture here that's been so poisoned by this cold war bullshit left versus right um that we that we divide anything compassion anything having to do with social justice anything having to do with making people's lives better it's political and if it's political then it's got to be you know it's going to be the other tribe who's doing that and if it's the other tribe who's doing that then we're not going to do that because it's them who said it it's not what was said it was who said it yeah, I think that our political system definitely feeds into this. Like, uh, I could I could see the incentive for the liberals to ignore this happening because if if this had broken, you know, say prior to the election uh, and this had become known, uh, they probably would have been reduced to one, maybe two seats. Um, they they would have been wiped out as a political force. And in fact, you know, the the NDP can speak to that. They they went through Bingo Gate in the '90s, where you know it very much a smaller scale than this, but you know, money that shouldn't have went into the NDP coffers, and then they were punished at the polls for it. Like, uh, and then that wasn't the only th- reason, but you know, ultimately they ended up with two seats, and that was they didn't even have official party status. So like, there is incentive not to let the public find out about this. And there was definitely some times when you look back at the record and you can see specific incidences where it really looked like somebody turned the other way. So when we, we talked already about how um, Rich Coleman came out and, and lambasted one of the investigators and said, you know, he has no grounds for what he's saying. None of his superiors agree with him. Um, now, he was the Solicitor General at the time. And based on the public reports and what was going on, he said, you know, I'm, I'm going to launch an investigation, I'll have a report back, you know, the, this was said in January, he gave a time frame that the report was going to be back at the end of February, uh, end of February comes, beginning of March comes, reporters start to report and say, oh, well, you know, we're, we're still waiting for this report to come out now, remember, this is 2011, this is 2011, and so Christy Clark had just taken over the leadership of the BC Liberal Party with the help of Rich Coleman as her chief fundraiser, uh, they were trying very, very hard to make sure that uh, the scandal of the HST and Gordon Campbell was buried as quickly as possible. Um, Christy came in. She was brought in as the premier. There was a cabinet flip. Rich Coleman was suddenly no longer the solicitor general. Shirley Bond was in. That report disappeared. What did happen, though, was the HST referendum got moved up from September until June. Yeah, it's just it's so it's so frustrating to hindsight is 2020 and we do now have the benefit of knowing a little more about what was going on probably more than they knew at the time um but you you can just see that there was a pattern of looking the other way of of protecting the political brand of deflecting uh i you know some sometimes i i really think maybe they truly didn't know what was going on because it was so in their own interests not to know what was going on they they, they would have taken every step possible to justify or rationalize in their own heads that, that what they were seeing was not what they were seeing. Like they, you know, uh, politicians become very good at spin. And, and uh, I think, you know, we, we often think that, you know, that's always external. But I think for a lot of politicians, uh, they're very good at spin because they're very good at convincing themselves. Uh, you know, the best politicians believe what they're saying. And when they're good at spin, they believe what they're saying. And so I think, you know, the BC Liberals, maybe as a consequence of being in power for too long, uh, maybe without the strongest of of an opposition, uh, I think they really convinced themselves that they were doing a great job and that there were no problems. And and that allowed this to flourish. Yeah, I want to introduce this uh, concept of uh, gamification and how things get turned into games. On uh, Joe Rogan's podcast, he talked about how he doesn't believe that, you know, there's there's these really bad cops that just don't like, uh, you know, weed users. Um, but it's that they understand 
what they do as being part of a game that if they do this they get that if they get this amount of people um arrested or, or this amount of fines here then they get this kind of reward and, and there's an incentive to do that when we're talking about politicians having like they're, they're being really good at spin and you know they might get caught up in their own spin um, but part of it is it's a very real thing very real phenomenon um, that you turn your work into a game in order to make it survivable so that you're not you know crushed by existential doom um <laughs> or you know some along like that but you it is as you said like the, it, uh you're not gonna see uh the make all you're not gonna see the whole picture because you're so caught up in in the game of spinning everything and looking after your own interests and preserving them um you're focused on the next election you're not focused on and, and like how things get prioritized basically on that here where it's like you only have so many and we are human right and that's something we should be rather compassionate about um even for those at, at the top making even bad decisions here which is they're they're human beings they, they only have so much time uh to be able to devote to different issues and and have so many things on their plate um that they understand a very real uh, threat of losing the election means losing their job means losing everything that they work towards there's a lot of ego involved there's a lot of you know pride and dignity involved in being able to maintain that office and you get caught up in the game of winning that game and all of those other things kind of take a backseat and it's much easier to do if you're really good at spin and when we talk about gamification and political parties and how they want to protect their brands um, it just really emphasizes to me how important this referendum on proportional representation is, um, it, it's not going to solve everything. I don't think that anybody's ever going to say that changing to a proportional representation system is going to solve everything, but when you look at how government has to work when one party does not have all of the power and all of the access to information and all of the ministers um, working for the same party, that's something where you do start to then see how there can be some more transparency and more accountability because then the interest and the calculation of interest changes because you're not just defending your brand, but you're also wanting to make sure that the other party doesn't ruin your brand by having something really bad happen while you're on the watch. So you both want to be a little bit more honest uh, and, and get into things a little bit more thoroughly. Uh, perhaps those investigations would have actually come out with some results that didn't take years and decades to to start mm -hmm. seeing some real changes in how the system was operating. I, I think that's a great point. Um, I, I feel at essence what a new electoral system would do, what proportional representation would do is it would change the way we disagree, it would change the quality of our disagreements so that they were a little more constructive. But Christina, your point is excellent, which is it also changes how we calculate interest. And if if we're gonna be working with, dis with people we disagree with, um, even fundamentally, but we're forced to work with them, then that's going to change the way we look at our, because right now, like we have this 100% of the power going to one party. So they can just play the media uh, cycle of knowing that like, well, if you wait this long here, the, the story's going to die down and something inevitably will crop up. And then you can start talking about that. And then it can just deflect in the meantime. So you can play that game, but it's different when you have to, when you're, when you're with people from the other teams, essentially, and have to work together.
I think, uh, you know, this has been a pretty heavy episode, so I think that's probably a good place to wrap it up. Uh, so I do, first of all, uh, thank you to everyone who has listened. Uh, I, I really appreciate, uh, we, we actually have been growing every, every episode and it's, it's really heartening to see people, more and more people interested, particularly because this is fairly niche. It's British Columbia politics and, you know, it takes a very particular person to be interested. So thank you to everyone out there. Uh, please uh, stay in touch with us. Follow us on Facebook forward slash WCV podcast. Uh, follow us on Twitter at WCV podcast. Uh, it, feel free to email us. Uh, my email is ryan at westcoastviews.ca. Uh, Mark's is marks at westcoastviews.ca. You can send however you feel to either of us. Uh, and, uh, and thank you, uh, Christina and Mark. Christina, you don't have an email address yet, but uh, if people want to get in touch with Christina, feel free to email us we will definitely pass on the message so um thank you both for being here and